BSTEM with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hi and welcome to the 181st episode of the Robots Podcast. I am Jana and today we'll learn more about neuromorphic computers. Neuromorphic computers are those that aim to mimic neural systems to achieve, for example, visual perception or multisensory integration. During last year's Robo Business in Boston, Massachusetts, our interviewer Aldro spoke to Todd Hilton, Senior Vice President at Brain Corporation a company that aims to make intelligent and useful machines a part of everyday life. They discussed the robotics development board BSTEM, which approximates a neuromorphic computer, as well as the iRover, a small balancing robot that demonstrates how the BSTEM can be used in mobile robots. Hi, welcome to Robots Podcast. Hi, this is Todd Hilton from Brain Corporation. Can you introduce yourself further? Yes, uh, I'm the Senior VP of Strategy at Brain Corporation. Um, Brain Corporation's a technology startup located in San Diego, California, working on computing hardware and software technology for robotics. Can you tell me the goal and motivation behind the company? So the company's mission is to provide computing technology, and by this I mean hardware, software, and some cloud-based or web-based services Uh, to people who want to build robots so that robots can become more a part of everyday life than they currently are. I often ask people, you know, how many robots did you see today? And usually the answer is none, unless they have maybe a vacuum cleaner at home. Um, so our mission, though, is to make it possible for many, many more robots to be created by providing some of the foundational technologies that are, frankly, quite challenging to produce if you're building a robot from scratch. And so to begin, can you give me an overview of neuromorphic computing and its advantages over using a CPU? So this, uh, this is a topic near and dear to my heart, and certainly part of what Brain Corporation does. Um, so before working at Brain Corporation, I was at uh, DARPA where I sponsored a project in neuromorphic computing called Synapse. And um, the goal for neuromorphic computing in general, and it's I'll relate it back to the Synapse project, was to see if it was possible to build a different kind of computing architecture, one in which the, 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 uh, the computing was massively distributed, one in which the memory was embedded very, very near the computing elements, um, and uh, one in which, to draw inspiration from biology, there were very simple processing units that you might think of as neurons, um, sending messages to other processing units via things you might think of as spikes um, with connections between them which are the memory around the, the processors which you might think of as synapses. Um, so that was, um, that was the abstraction and the goal for that project was to see if it was possible to build a large-scale neuromorphic computer um, and also to push boundaries in uh, memory technology, because you need a lot of memory on board to really make a good neuromorphic computer, and to um, push the, our understanding of what we would be able to teach these chips to do and how we would teach them by having basically synaptic modification and neuronal dynamics built into the, uh, built into the chips. 
Um, the way that fits into uh, Brain Corporation's uh, strategy is though we're not building neuromorphic chips, uh, many of the algorithms that we write for our robots um, have ideas like neurons and synapses sort of underneath them, the learning algorithms that we do. So we very much would like to be able to buy these neuromorphic chips uh, when they uh, become available because we think they will be a great enabler for our robotics packages. And to come back to, I think, your original question about you know CPU versus uh, neuromorphic uh, processor, um, CPUs are great general-purpose computing. I mean, you can give them gigantic lists of instructions. They're pretty simple to use, and that's sort of why we like them. But... You know, if you need to do a whole bunch of things in parallel, if you need to coordinate many different things in time and space, they're not very efficient. It's just too much energy wasted moving stuff back and forth in the chip. And an example of that is vision processing. A good example is vision processing, <clears throat> which goes right back to robotics. I mean, we think one of the key things that robots need that they mostly don't have are vision systems. And when I say vision system, I... You know, there are different levels of vision systems. Some are quite simple. Um, but we envision, you know, at some point, not in the distant future, a vision system that actually begins to learn the, the dynamics and the statistics of, an, of its environment in a spontaneous way. And that really needs a different kind of computer to do that very well. Mm-hmm. And so now, for such a computer, you guys have created BSTEM. Can you tell me a bit about that? So BSTEM is, does not include a neuromorphic processor. Those neuromorphic processors are still sort of in their, you know, very early phases of, uh, of being uh, built and all those tools needed to make them, and they're not commercially available yet. So, but what BSTEM is, is it's the closest thing we can get right now. Uh, we, we wanted a processor that was low power, low cost, but still with a lot of computational capacity, because in a robot, unfortunately, you don't have a lot of power and you need a lot of computation if you've got a mobile robot. So we, BSTEM is, the basic technology is derived from the mobile phone industry. And the system on chips that are, uh, that are available for mobile phones uh, provide lots of different computing capabilities. Um, GPUs, CPUs, DSPs, various codecs for vision, all of these things um, are part of what we need. So we have taken state-of-the-art, cell phone chipsets made by Qualcomm and repurposed them for robotics on this little board we call BSTEM. It also comes with sensors, drivers for various motors, breakout boards for various motors that the, that the robots may have. So are there similar development boards out there? I think, I, I don't know of any similar development boards that use state-of-the-art mobile phone technology. Um, and for robotics, I mean. There certainly are development boards that use mobile phone technology. If you want to build a phone or a tablet, you can, you can get one of these boards. Unfortunately, they're a long, long way from what a roboticist really wants. And that's what we've done with BSTEM. We sort of closed the gap between those development boards built for phones and, you know, a development board built for robots. So, you know, if you want to build a robot and you get a BSTEM, it's going to, be, it's going to look and feel just like what it is you want to what, what you would expect it to, to be as a roboticist and not as a mobile phone developer. So what kind of reactions have you gotten from people who have, are using BSTEM? So it's been, um, we've given BSTEM to, you know, basically a handful of developers. The basic reaction is, wow, I can't believe it. I've got a whole Ubuntu package on this tiny little board, 
you know, it, it takes about two watts to run it. I can develop my, my whole robotic controller on this board. Um, if I can do Gmail on it if I feel like it. Um, plus, it's got a whole bunch of other tools and goodies that make it easy for me to write the controllers that I want. So that's, that's the reaction that we get. Now, can you tell me a bit about iRover? iRover. Okay. So, so first, first let, let, me, let me back up a little bit. Um, as I said in the beginning, you know, we aspire to build the computing technology for people that want to build robots. Um, we we are, don't plan to build and sell robots. But the iRover we built because we had to integrate the whole technology stack, basically. You know, the, 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 hard, the compute hardware, the software, put it on a robot, put the sensors on it, and... To come maybe to a later point, we wanted to be able to train the robot so it's got a learning system uh, that we put on it as well. So that was what iRover was about. It, was, it basically forced us to build the whole technology piece so that we could begin to show our potential partners what it is we can do. Mm-hmm. Okay, can you describe it, some of the sensors and actuators that well, iRover has? Well, iRover is uh, you know, sort of a, a two-wheel balancing robot, sort of a Segway kind of robot is what, what most people call it. It's got uh, uh, two cameras uh, from which it, and a, and a relatively simple vision system with which it can sort of see its environment. Um, it has this B-STEM board that I mentioned. Um, it, it has uh, onboard IMUs and uh, uh, magnetometers, which are used in some of the algorithms. There's actually a lot of things on B-STEM that it, it doesn't use because we didn't need them for this particular robot, but other roboticists would probably like them. Um, so, and, and B-STEM also includes a user interface, uh, which you can use to both remote control the robot and to train the robot in a, in a behavior. And that remote controller looks like a gamepad and an iPad combination. So it's sort of like, you know, video game sort of controller for, uh, for the robot. Yeah, it looks to me like a PSP, the older yeah, kind. Yeah, yeah. So can you talk about iRover's modes of learning and so how you've had how you've been able to train him? Okay. Current all of the all of the learning modes on iRover now are what we call supervised learning. Supervised learning is when you essentially, you know, by showing the robot what it is you're supposed to do, it learns to associate its sensory input with whatever it is you told it to do. So, you know, if I say, you know, there's a green block on the left, Whenever you see a green block on the left, it's supposed to turn right. I just show it that behavior a few times, and it makes that association. Um, it's kind of, um, you know, it's a, it's a very old way of, well, well-known way of doing training. Um, there's not one supervised learning algorithm. There are many. We've built many, many different supervised learning algorithms. Um, and uh, we pick the ones that we do on the iRover we're doing primarily because we wanted to show navigation behaviors, and so, you know, we basically built our own special supervised learning uh, algorithm that we thought was particularly effective um, and also didn't require a gigantic computational resource. Um, So that's it. I mean, in the future, we will be having, uh, as as we build out sort of the learning piece, uh, which we call brain operating system, that's the software stack that uh, allows the robot to learn. That's that's what we call it. it will also have what people generally think of as unsupervised learning, where simply by exploring its environment, it begins to learn sort of the structure of its world. And it will have uh, likely as well some 
reinforcement learning, which is I kind of think of as an impoverished supervised learning, where instead of telling the robot exactly what it's supposed to do, you just tell it that that was good, that was bad sort of thing. Can you talk about some of your examples of actually training iRover? Uh, a few things that we've done, um, and, and on other robots as well. Um, we've trained it to basically do simple navigation around, you know, objects that may be on the floor, like, you know, around your desk, around your chair, around your trash can, you know, do some loops some figure eights, go from point A to point B. And the way we do it is uh, you, we just show it its behavior by remote control a few times. We show it a few loops around the path it's supposed to do. And then we sort of let it go, and, and uh, it, it, if it's correctly learned it, it does the same behavior. Um, you, you, you can also train it sort of incrementally, where you, you train it, you let it go, and you see if it's doing what you want, and you just give small corrections when it makes mistakes, and over time it does better at those areas where it was making mistakes. And for the kinds of things that we're doing now, it usually only takes a couple of minutes to train a path like the ones I just, just described. We've also done some other training. It's very similar ideas where, you know, you give it some simple gestures and it can learn to come to you or go away from you. Um, on other robots, we've trained them to play fetch. You know, we can show them an object that they're supposed to find, um, put the object out somewhere. It'll go get the object and bring it back to a base. And it's all trained. Um, so that, uh, And the cool thing about that is, you know, it's it's hard to write a piece of code that would just do that generically, right? I mean, you, you can't really foresee every environment, even when you only, even if they're pretty simple, you, you can't really code it. So that's why we think, that's, that's one of the key things we think robots need to be able to do to be part of everyday life, is they need to be able to, to adapt or be trained in the environments in which they're going to perform, because nobody, no coder can anticipate every single situation the robot's going to see. So this will kind of bring the development of robots and their behaviors to the masses because you can actually have the robotic platform and then train them to behave as you want? Exactly. Is that the goal of RainCorp? That, one of them? That's one of the goals. I think it'll go in stages. I mean, there will be um, if, if there will be some coding probably going on at the robot builder and maybe some pre-training, right, for the guys who build the robots so that, you know, the thing doesn't have to learn from scratch when you buy it from Best Buy and stick it in your home. Um, but, you know, when you get it in the home, um, we think that uh, it will be much more capable and much more useful and much more possible, actually, if you can give it additional training. So this, one of the challenges for us, though, is come up with the user interfaces so that people who aren't roboticists and who aren't technologists can train a robot. Um, and so there's a big stack of things that we worry about all the way from, you know, what can people actually do? How can we actually control the robot? How do we make it clear? How do you communicate the task to the robot? You know, the AI pieces that try to put together, you know, what the robot senses and what it's being told to do, all the computing hardware, um, and then a whole cloud infrastructure so that you can get updates, you know, you can upload brains, you can upload you know, what the robot's done, so if we can diagnose it, if something bad has happened, you know, because it's not performing the way it is. So we're doing all of those things. So now using vSTEM, what are some of the other applications that you anticipate seeing from perhaps the user community? So that's what we're just now beginning to learn really uh, in detail. We, we sort of were in hibernation for many years getting the technology together. It's only in the last month or so we've actually been telling people. We didn't really want to start saying much until we had a platform on which we could demonstrate it, which is why the iRover is, exists. So um, what I see in general 
um, in the robotics industry, like at this show, we're at Robo Business now. They're they're mostly very small companies, you know, in narrow niches where they've they built a robot, um, and uh, you know, as a kind of silly exaggeration, it, it seems to be that most of the companies bring in you know, gears and motors and sheet metal and plastic and a few chips at sort of the loading dock and a robot comes out the other end, right? And so it basically means, you know, they're trying to, they have to do the whole, the whole technology piece, which is really, really challenging. I mean, the stuff that we're doing took a gigantic amount of, of uh, resource to actually accomplish. So, you know, no, doesn't make sense for every, every company to do that which is, you know, sort of our business proposition. We'll, we'll do that for you. But pretty much all the robots that I've seen at this meeting, um, you know, there are simple robots that roll around on four wheels and see stuff. There are some that have grippers. There are some humanoid robots. There are some combinations of those things. I think all of those robots uh, could benefit from the technologies that we're developing. So uh, I think another thing that... Um, we would like to see happen in the robotics industry is we'd like to see it be much easier for you know new companies to form around building robots uh there's a i think there's just a a huge economic barrier to getting going because the computing systems that you need just are they mostly don't exist and you have to build them from scratch uh also you know i think the people that really know robotics are they have some deep domain expertise in you know whatever the problem is they're trying to solve whether it's drilling holes or you know sweeping floors or cleaning windows or whatever uh you know there's no reason they should have to know you know the entire software stack on a you know a, a, a modern uh system on a chip it's crazy so if we can get these technology pieces uh together and available and that's our plan of course then I think there'll be an explosion of just new robotics companies, right? Two guys in a garage, you know, out of engineering school can build a robot, rapidly prototype it, show that it works, take it to an investor with, with you know, and validate that they can do what they say they want to do uh, with, with very little investment. And that will enable sort of, you know, an explosion of robotic applications, different niches that people want to get into. And that's, the, that's sort of the world as we see it in the future. Many different robotic applications, many different robots with specialized niches. It's sort of what we have now, except it would be, like, vastly larger. And, of course, there will be some, some big ones, too. There will be some big consumer plays where everybody's got the robot that, I don't know, uh, cleans the table or whatever it is the killer application is. We're still, we're still talking to people about that. So in developing this technology, neuromorphic, something like neuromorphic computing... What are some of the major challenges you've encountered, and what are some lessons learned from them? So major challenges now and for the foreseeable future will be getting sufficient computational capacity on board small mobile robots. Um, One of the ways to mitigate that that we're working on is to to try to ship part of the computation off into the cloud. That turns out to be a very complicated problem. problem too. It's not as simple as saying, yeah, there's big computers in the cloud and we'll just do it all there because there's all sorts of issues about moving data around and latency that may make sense for some applications but but not for others. Um, So from my perspective, that's still the biggest technical challenge is the computing capacity. If the neuromorphic computing technology matures rapidly, that would alleviate, I think, a, a great fraction of it. Most of the computation that we do now, even on iRover, is vision, 
It's a, it, they're vision algorithms of one kind or another. And that's a real sweet spot for the neuromorphic computers. So I, I'd say that's, that's one big part. Uh, I think the other challenge for us is, you know, I described an industry structure that I think needs to change. Um, I'm not sure how long that will take. You know, as a business, our goal is to, of course, you know, you, you've, got, you know you've got so much capital to work with. Uh, you know, you've got to become self-sustaining and profitable before you run out of money, right? That depends on the ability of the industry to adopt what we're doing, even if they maybe don't think about it the way we do yet. Um, so that's a, certainly a risk for us. Um, lessons learned, I would say. It's really challenging to take a, a state-of-the-art uh, system on chip built for a mobile phone and make it useful on a robotics platform. I think when we first started, we thought it was going to be a whole lot easier than it was. And a lot of people talk about, you know, how mobile phone technology is going to enable robotics, and it will. Um, But actually getting there from where we are now was a huge investment, and that was a a definite lesson learned. So I think uh, an additional lesson that we've learned is in doing the learning algorithms, that there's not one way to do them. There's many ways. Um, there's not a general purpose learning algorithm out there, at least not yet. So, um, you know, you have to be, you know, you have to do some experimentation to figure out what the best ones to do are. And I think, uh, as I like to tell, you know, the, the guys who do this, this is, uh, you know, work is the process of eliminating all the bad, complicated ideas in favor of the simple ones that work. Sometimes, though, you know, when you find the simple thing, you're sort of saying to yourself, you kick yourself and say, why didn't I think of that a long time ago? But that's just the way it is, right? The goal is to find the simple thing, and that takes a lot of work. So, you know, we're, you know, we're, Brain Corporation's got some very capable people working for it, but we're just a small group of people. There's all kinds of people that can write these kinds of algorithms, right? And there's, there's no reason we shouldn't make it possible for them to do that. So, Part of our strategy going forward, so hopefully sometime next year, um, is to make our BrainOS system um, available with APIs so that if you're a, you know, a AI guy or a neural net guy, a machine learning guy, you can start writing your own stuff. You can write your own learning algorithms, and you'll already have the whole robotic platform, all the infrastructure and so forth. So you can focus on that piece, because that's a lot of work too. And if I can multiplex that out into the world, right, then, you know, I think there'll be a much faster spread of the technology. And I think it's a much better business strategy for us as well. So those are, I guess, two lessons that I would say that I've learned. Um, I think the other lesson I've learned is that uh, it's very challenging to try to build a new technology and build a new business model and into a new market at the same time. That's really what we're trying to do. It forces us to make some educated but, you know, educated guesses that are still quite, you know, still quite unknown what the, what the result will be. So it takes sort of a, you know, a real leap of faith sometimes to say, yep, we're going to build an iRover. You know, we're going to spend a year building this, you know, little plastic robot that runs around and so you can train it because if I don't have it, um, you know, I can't show anybody what I've got. And then you say, well, if I build an iRover, what if it's the wrong sort of thing? What if nobody likes it? What's the application? And so forth and so on. So you have, you have a constant sort of chicken and egg problem. Um, but that's just the way it is. That's also what makes it so exciting. You know, it's this big chicken and egg problem, right? So I've got all these great people that want to work the hard technology problems, the business problems, 
you know, and fortunately, um, there's, uh, you know, there's an appetite for it now, so investors are interested, and that enables us to do it. For those that have less expertise, what would be some ways that they can get involved, learn more, and eventually contribute to this technology? So, at least in the near future, I mean, if you would like to, say, get an iRover yourself, um, currently the, the iRover is in a closed beta program. We've just got a handful of people using it um, so we can get feedback on what we've got and shake out the bugs that we've missed and so forth. But you know, sometime next year, it'll be possible to buy the computing system from us, the boards and the software and so forth, and we'll have uh, the files. The iRover is mostly 3D printed, so we'll just make those files available and the parts lists and so forth, and you can buy the board and build your own. Um, we'll probably put a couple more robotic designs that are 3D printed like that. That will, you know, if people are enthusiastic about it and have access to some resources like a 3D printer, or of course you can buy them online too, the 3D printed parts, then that's one easy way to get, to get going. Um, you know, you still need some degree of expertise in computers and so forth to use the board and change things on it and so forth. But it's a Linux operating system. I mean, you turn this thing on, you plug the robot into your monitor and keyboard, and, you know, screens come up. It looks just like your desktop. So it's, it's not nearly as intimidating as it, as it used to be. And so for BrainCorp, what is your future direction and some of your future goals? So our, our current... It's pretty clear to us what, on the technical side, we've sort of made the guesses that we need to make. So we know it's pretty clear what we're doing for the next year. It's pretty ambitious. Um, on the business side, um, you know, we're just sort of breaking out of the box. So we're talking to a lot of people. Um, and I think, um, so our goal here in the, you know, on the, on the technical side, we've got lots of developments going on and new hardware, new learning algorithms, APIs for developers, that, that stuff we all know what we're going to do. On the business side, we need to refine our business model, right? We, we're a technology vendor, essentially, but there's different ways to do that. How do you capture it in such a way that, you know, you provide the best value to the customer, uh, but, you know, you also have to make money on it. We aspire, we, we need to do what we really want to do. We need to be, a, you know, someday a really big tech company, right? So we've got to figure out a business model that makes it possible for that to happen. And wrapping up, what do you think is the future of robotics? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, it seems like robot, robotics is always the technology that's just around the corner and never quite gets here. Um, so there, that, that says to me that it's hard. And you can ask yourself, you know, is now the time or, or not? But there are certain things that suggest that maybe now is the time, which is, of course, you know, if, if I didn't believe it, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. Uh, on the one hand, um, there is sort of the explosion in low-cost computing hardware. It's gotten really cheap. Thanks to Moore's Law, you can get a lot. And that's going to continue for, for a while still. We're going to get better and cheaper um, computers, and maybe the neuromorphic stuff will come along too, and that will be a big tech, tech enabler. So that's sort of on the, on the tech side of things. Oh, and I would say also on the tech side of things, you know, there's been a huge amount of work in neural nets, AI, machine learning over the past three decades. But it really hasn't had much of an impact on robotics yet. But a lot of people know how to do that now. There's a lot of tools out there. You can, people are trained in it, so you can hire them. So I think that's a, that's a definite tech enabler for robotics, too, that maybe hasn't been as prominent as it 
as it was. In the past, it isn't as prominent as it is now. I think thirdly, sort of on the uh, economics side, is that the, the big tech companies, you know, the Intels and Qualcomm's and Google's of the world, you know, they're looking for the next big thing. And they can't avoid robotics. They can't. I mean, there's, it's already clear. Everybody says, you know, we've got to have robots to take care of the old people, which I will be one soon enough. Um, and it's true. We really do need them. So there is going to be a huge demand if we can get the technology and the industry structured appropriately in time. So that's why I'm bullish on it. I, mean, I think it is a good time for robotics. I think it's a really exciting time. Um, and, the, you know, another, I think, important thing is, you know, we've done a lot of work studying the brain lately. And although that's still, you know, you know we're never going to, like, you know, put a mouse brain on a robot, you know, knowing something about how, how brains work is really important for giving us inspiration in how to do it, you know, in a different kind of technology, like a computing technology of one form or another. So that's also why I think it's a great time. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for today. If you would like to find out more, just visit our website at robotspodcast.com. And for the latest news and developments in robotics, check out robohub.org. The Robots Podcast will be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. BSTEM with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics.